Hi, I'm Mitzi. Hi, I'm Ria. Hi, I'm also Chris. Hi, I'm Stephanie. And this week, we have some amazing guests. Hi, I'm Troy. Hi, I'm Laura. And this is Virtual Hallway, the podcast where we talk about teaching at a community college. This week, we're discussing all things union. The union represents faculty interests in many ways, but a lot of us know very little about the real work going on there. In this episode, we have some representatives with us to help us understand, appreciate, and hopefully participate in this important component of the institution. Hi, Troy and Laura. Thanks for joining us this evening. So tell us a little bit about yourself and your professional background and also just how you got involved with the union. Okay, well... Um, I am currently at El Camino. I've been teaching there for five years and I'm in the chemistry department. I tend to teach generally the first year of the chemistry series. Um, my background, well, I'm from Colombia, originally moved to the States like 20 years ago or so. And I did my school at UC San Diego, my undergrad and my grad school at UCLA. And I did go to community college before that. That's where I learned how to speak English. So that was really useful. Um, at El Camino, how I became involved with the union? Well, it turns out that my family has always been involved with unions and they've always been labor friendly. But um, I really just thought that that work happened by itself until a coworker of ours said, hey, you know, these things are happening and we're unhappy. Let's do something. And so he basically pulled me and said, does anybody want to help? And I said, sure, I'll help you. And that was the first time I ever said, okay, I'm going to run for secretary for the union. I have no idea what I'm going to be doing or what I will um, end up doing, but I'll give it a try and I'll help. And guess what? I got elected with writing, people wrote in my name and I've been in the union since then. That's about three years ago. So um, I, I take issue with this question. I don't know that any part of my life or my background has ever been <laughs> professional, but I'll pretend for the sake of this. Um, I'm a I'm product of, of Southern California and California public education since seventh grade. I've been in California public schools. I did my undergraduate at UC San Diego in chemistry uh, and my graduate work at, at Cal. So I've, I've lived in all the big metropolitan areas of California. Uh, and I'm, I'm back here after graduate school. I worked for a couple of years at UCI as a staff scientist. And um, it was a big transition going from graduate school to a 40-hour-a-week job. So I got a part-time job uh, teaching because I had TA'd throughout all of um, college and, and my graduate school career. And I like that a lot. I was um, teaching at Fullerton College at night a couple times a week, general chemistry. And um, I started to look to make that shift. I'd always really enjoyed teaching. So I, I ended up getting a job at uh, El Camino in the spring of 2016. And now I'm tenured, so you're all stuck with me. Um, in, in terms of what I've done since then, uh, I've mostly taught organic chemistry. So I like, I'm very cautious with that information when I see doctors, so make, gotta make sure they treat me nicely. A lot of them uh, take issue with what I teach. I'm uh, sometimes the final boss, but right now or online, I teach the first semester of it. And it's my favorite class to teach. Uh, it's one of the hardest, but it keeps me thinking. I, I totally love it. Um, in my time at El Camino, I've served on as many committees and, and bodies as I can. I've served a full term as a senator. I've been vice president of the Federation now for a couple of years. Uh, 
millions of hiring committees, program review, all of it, just to see how the campus worked. And I would say my um, supervillain uh, origin story for how I ended up on the Federation e-board was um, when I was hired, we were actually in the midst of voting on a contract. And it was something that I couldn't vote on because I had just been hired and it had already been determined. And as I looked through what the agreement was and kind of looked around at other districts, I, I thought to myself, and I was not alone in thinking to myself, why aren't we negotiating this set of 20 other things? And why are we so far behind? And why do we have these absurd rules about overload that doesn't get paid and office hours that don't get paid to part-time faculty and all these different things? Um, and in making enough noise, kind of along with my colleagues uh, in my department, we uh, sent one as a tribute to the executive board. And we felt so bad for him that we joined him uh, in time so I, I guess that's uh, how I got involved. Like I said, none of it would be professional. That's a great origin story. That's how you got turned to the dark side. I understand. Um, so, you know, the union faces a lot of challenges, but what is the biggest challenge facing the union right now? I would say overall, the most persistent challenge, and I think this is true for virtually any industry, any workplace, any union, is education and mobilization. Um, unions live and die by their members, not who leads them, not how well-funded they are, but by what their members know and how engaged they are. And we have a, a system of communication at El Camino that is, uh, we'll, we'll say, politically antiquated. Um, it keeps us in silos. I mean, if you think of the number of people you know from other departments, uh, it, it's not because you caught them on an email thread or you you met them in person. It's because you served on a committee with them or something of that nature. Or you happen to be in the same kind of like incoming cohort of, of faculty members. We're really geographically separated when we have normal situation. And in this pandemic situation, paradoxically, actually, I think a lot of people are getting to know each other over Zoom, but we're even further separated. So just making sure that you have those contacts, that people know what's going on, that they're engaged, that they know what issues affect them in the workplace is easily the, the biggest number one challenge, just keeping people informed, up to speed and engaged. And I'm going to add to Troy's thoughts. And I'm, I wrote down that the biggest challenge to me is the lack of engagement from faculty. That is absolutely what keeps us from being able to move forward a lot of times because you ask people sometimes and they're like, oh, there is a union. I'll give you my own personal example. When I first arrived at El Camino, and again, remember, I was a labor friendly person. I ended up not joining the union for a couple of months because I wasn't even sure what I was joining until another professor came and said, hey, Laura, you know, why aren't you a member? And I explained to her and she said, oh, okay. But then I joined because at the same time, I learned just a little bit about it. And I said, you know what, it, it might be useful, but just, I don't know, it's, it, there is lack of engagement. That's the biggest challenge for me. So being a more recent hire myself and having been a part-timer for years at various campuses, um, knowing what my rights are and knowing what the union can do for me has always been a blind spot that I have had. Um, I think this really was the reason we wanted to have you two on the podcast uh, because we suspect or you know, I suspect at least that many of our colleagues feel the same way and know that they are part of a union and have maybe a vague understanding of what that means. Um, so what is one thing you wish faculty knew about how the union works? All right. The truth is, 
One thing I wish that faculty knew and that I knew as well before is that the union is us. There is no union and then faculty that is separated. You know, we are the union. And so if we don't come together and we don't get behind our own ideas, I guess you could say, behind what we want, it's never going to work, right? So the union is us advocating for our own rights. And so I think uh, if faculty knew that, I think they would be more engaged and we would have a much stronger position to do what we want to do. Yeah, and to add to that, and, and full disclosure, um, I think at this point, because Laura and I were were kind of uh, at the table the entire time through this last 10 months of uh, collective bargaining agreement negotiation, we, we share uh, what is maybe a total of three quarters of a brain now, and all of it is hers. Uh, but we have the same answer to this question, and I'll just torture you with a sports metaphor. Um, so if, if you think of negotiations or, or kind of how unions operate as, as like two opposing football teams, I think there's a, this perception that, you know, as the, the faculty, your union executive board are, are like the, the team that you hire to go play the game. And it, it really doesn't work like that. It is very much what Laura said. Um, it's everyone. Like if, if we hire the best coaches and trainers and strategists and we don't feel the team, we'll lose by hundreds of points. And it, it takes engagement. Um, it doesn't have to be expert engagement. It doesn't even have to be right in every case. But like our power comes from our numbers. It's really difficult for a small management body to deny some some group that they're outnumbered 100 to 1 by. And, and that's where kind of unions live and die, again, by their members and their engagement. So the number one thing that, that I wish everyone on, under the sun understood about unions is that your individual effort, your engagement, your knowledge, whether or not you read that email, whether or not you know whether or not that thing your boss is telling you to do is fair or legal or right, is super critical and it's really important. And if you don't know, that's okay. Ask, come get involved. None of us started as experts and uh, and most of us didn't go to law school. I find it interesting what you both have said about this question uh, because it just makes me think back to when I was first hired full-time five years ago. And I think so much of my lack of participation or active participation is simply just because I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm going to be honest. I, I really like bare bones do not understand what the union does for me. Like I remember getting this packet on the day that I was hired. It's like 70 pages or a hundred pages, this big booklet. And it's like uh, sign here. If you're going to be a member or if you're not going to be a member, but pay 75, I don't know. It was like even that paper that I had to sign made zero sense to me. And I was like, uh, where do I, I just remember asking somebody in HR, like which line should I sign? I mean, it comes from an honest place of complete ignorance. And I'm someone who, who is constantly jumping into committees and wanting to do all these things. And trust me, if I knew anything about the union, I'd be your, you know, I would be the cheerleader on it, but I, I genuinely don't know anything. And it's maddening. And I feel it's embarrassing, you know, and that's why we invited you here. But I, it's, it's, it's humbling to hear that you wish that more faculty knew or were part of it. Uh, because here, here, here you are speaking to that, that very person. 
No, and I, you make a lot of really good points, and I don't think it's anything to be embarrassed about, and it's one of the most common things I hear. Uh, there are so many pieces of this to touch on. Let me try and organize my thoughts. So I guess I guess we have to go to my, uh, I didn't join the union when I started here earlier either story. Um, I, I don't join labor organizations just as a, a matter of principle instantaneously. I like to feel them out and meet people and and see that they are competently run and that they they kind of like align with my interests as you know, part of the represented workforce and all of that. Um, so it took me a semester uh, be, before I joined and going through that experience of kind of looking through my contract, comparing to other campuses and stuff like that, um, kind of activated this inherent character flaw that I've suffered with my whole life. I cannot walk away from a fight that I can pick. So it was, there were just so many. I mean, there are so many ways in which El Camino faculty are behind and underserved and kind of split apart and against each other and just antiquated. And I mean, it shows in our campus. Like when I started my undergraduate degree, the whole campus that I was on had Wi-Fi. That didn't happen until like my third year of full-time employment at El Camino, which is insane. But anyway, I'm getting far afield. Um, in terms of the, the knowledge and education and all that, it, it's not an indictment of faculty. I mean, it's boring to look at your contract and you just want to teach and do your job and work with your students. That's what you were hired to do. Unfortunately, the reality of the situation is just like with retirement planning, like if you don't know how to do it and you don't learn how to do it, you're not going to be good at it. And just like they don't teach retirement planning in high school, they don't teach labor organization in your workplace unless your union does the work. And that uh, kind of goes back to our earlier question of what's the biggest challenge we face as a union? It's communication, outreach, education, right? It's a critical backbone. It's the infrastructure to all of the problems you just addressed. You know, if I can reach you the day that you're hired in a way that resonates with you and puts a face to it, and if I can interest you in what we're doing, and if I can capture you to like put some work in for a contract article that really affects you in your area or your constituents or that you feel passionately about, like, hey, you're on the team and we're all on that team together, whether or not we want to be. Well, it's funny because you say, you know, you wish on day one of when faculty are hired, but I almost wonder if. A, another approach is is about at this point, about around the time when faculty may be getting tenured, because now I that first day I would have just gone, whoa, who's this guy, <laughs> right? Trying to get me to sign a thing. Um, I just got hired, you know, and now I'm five years in and I'm getting a feel for how this campus works. I'm finding a lot of areas of contention. And a lot of times my roadblock is, oh, you should talk to the union about that. Or, oh, that's a contract thing. And I think both of you know, because we've emailed separately about another issue where I have been told, oh, that's a contract thing. Like that's, that's a bigger issue for you. And now having been here a while, I'm thinking, all right, where's the union? Bring it. Let me get in there. <laughs> No, I think that, you know, uh, when you're when you're hired as new faculty, especially now in my case, I had never taught at El Camino as an adjunct. I'd, I'd been at other campuses. And so the idea of trying to understand what the union was was and all that kind of stuff was really overwhelming at first. Um, and, you know, I, and I'm not suggesting that now I know and now I'm an expert, but I think that with a lot of things and I think, unfortunately, that um that leverage goes against my interests in the long term, right? Because it's just like the the fine print. Everyone who uh, the lawyers who create fine print on anything are counting on you, not sifting through it and not having the legal background to really understand it, and getting bored and getting tired and just signing anyway. And so I think that 
you know, one of the things is that a lot of us, when we first get hired full time, we're so dedicated and desperate to prove ourselves in the classroom and to prove our, our worth to the college that we don't even take a second to think about self-advocacy or to think about improving our, our position or improving, um, you know, just moving forward on anything that has a huge impact on us. And so, and so I think that, uh, having people like both of you talk just now, you know, obviously for me, this is, this is huge. And I think that there's gotta be a way for us to weaponize this, you know, I mean, maybe sharing the podcast, of course, but, but it's, it's really cool to hear everything you're saying. I I'm really on board with, uh, what Rio was saying as well. I actually like the fact that both of you bring up really good points. Like Ria, you have a point in saying day number one, it's hard because you're being bombarded with so much information about everything else. And you're just thinking about how am I going to teach all of these classes that getting involved with the union right away is difficult. But I do think that is some sort, um, some set of some amount of time, I guess, that um, has to go by also so for you to feel invested, if I may say, in the college. Right. So you feel like you belong somewhere. And now I want to make change. Now I want to make sure that this is a place where people want to work, where people want to come to school, where people want to do good things. And um, and yeah, I mean, different people are going to have different times, but hopefully eventually we can reach as many people as possible to try to get them to understand and feel like they're part of something that is special and that is there for them. No, that's really well said. And I just wanted to add a, a couple of things. First, the shameless plug. Um, in, in terms of information, we do have a functional and beautiful website now, which had been defunct for years. I'm going to talk about it more later, but it's AFT1388.org. So AFT1388.org, that's our local number. And that is tended to regularly now. It has lots of useful information and reference, and it's just a good place to kind of check in and visit. It has a calendar on it. Um, your point about day one versus day 500 versus day 1000, et cetera, who's, who's even counting the days anymore, right? There are only three days. My student told me yesterday, tomorrow, and today uh, in, in this current situation. So uh, I should have my due dates accordingly. But anyhow, um, we do actually email faculty all the time. And it goes under the radar a lot um, because that's just how our email system works. And it's an imperfect method of communication, but it's, it's what we've got. So we try and reach out as much as we can, hold meetings and follow up with people. Um, Chris, I thought you brought up a really interesting point with fine print. Um, you're totally right. There is a lot of fine print. And the, the beauty of that fine print, or maybe the terror of it, is that not all of it applies to you. So not everyone has to be an expert in everything. And if you can just latch on to like some small kernel, even if you don't become an expert in it, you can inform faculty members around you and start to build a coalition around that. You can start to build out change. And I would say that 99% of the issues I deal with on a day-to-day -day basis in this position have nothing to do with me or my job personally. Like I have ferociously argued for constituents that I, I will receive no benefit from if I'm, you know, uh, right, or I, I win that argument at the table. And um, I, I think that's important because, you know, justice and fairness. Um, but yeah, the, the day one versus day a million comparison is really important, as is the, the education and outreach, which again, is uh, just an ongoing challenge. And there's another point you made, Chris, that escapes me now, but I've talked for far too long. So both Troy and Chris, you you both referenced the contract and, um, and speaking of fine print and 
um, and hefty documents. I mean, that's a that contract. I've I've actually looked at it. It's it's really overwhelming. Um, so, what do you think faculty should really know about their contract and what's in it? And you know, it's it's a pretty uh, daunting um, document to review. So, what should we know about it? Yeah, you're absolutely right, and I will be the first one to tell you that most contracts are poorly written. Ours is is very poorly written. Um, this is just a function of how contracts evolve over time. But in terms of what people should know or what I would love for them to know as faculty member, my answer is a non-answer. It's literally anything. And I, I don't mean that in, in a sarcastic way. Um, anything you know about our contract, even if it doesn't apply to you, is useful to know in how your workplace functions, in how your job is or isn't protected, and how you're paid for your job, in how you have job security. I, I mean, like I can pitch a million questions to this room right now. Um, if you're a full-time instructor, do you know what your retirement benefits package looks like? Do you know if you have one? If you're a part-time instructor, do you know if you're getting paid for office hours before or after three days ago and how many? I, I mean, there are just like tons of things that add up to anywhere between hours and days and, and hundreds and thousands of dollars that are super useful to know. So if there's any part of the contract that if you just open to a random page and read five sentences, like I, I think that's legitimately useful. Even if you're not that instructor, even if it doesn't apply to the, the type of employee you are, um, it helps you understand better how the bureaucracy works, how the system works and what your role is in that and where you fit in, how you can make progress and change. I'm gonna go to the other side of Troy here. So he says anything, I'm gonna say everything, okay? So what should you know about your contract? I think as much as you can, but really this question made me think for a little bit. And here's one thing that I wish faculty knew that is not in their contract, but it is about their contract. And it is that we can change it and it can be improved, right? That is not a document that lives somewhere in an office that is there for you just to reference and then it's there and it never changes. No, we can make changes to it and it can certainly be improved. And so if faculty I think are aware of that, then they would be more willing to get involved as well because then they know that they can, oh gosh, inflect some change into their own working conditions. And so I think that's very important for us to know. That's definitely not the kind of message that I was getting about our contract. So it's nice to hear you say that. I just had to comment on that. Um, I did come to um, a union membership meeting and it was after there was the announcement, there was a change in healthcare for part-time um, faculty that we're now getting some money each semester that um, we teach. And it's not a lot of money. So, correct me if I'm wrong, $75 a semester, right? And I was so glad I came to the meeting because I was thinking to myself, well, you know, that doesn't even pay for, you know, anything. <laughs> I have a prescription, maybe um, a copay, maybe. But um, I was so glad I came because I, I want to say it was you, Troy, but it might not have been who explained that this was um, an 
a, a big step because prior to this faculty, part-time faculty received nothing toward healthcare. And while it doesn't seem like a lot, it is a step in, in the right direction um, to even open the door for that. So um, I think that that point about the contract being a document that um, can be improved upon and is, a, is improved upon is really um, a great point to bring to light that I think we should all be aware of that. So thank you. Thinking about getting these kind of small steps and correct me if I'm wrong, um, it feels a little like maybe in like law speak or in lawyer, you know, the, the world of law when you have set a precedent. So it's like, well, we have this thing that we can already build off of. And so ideally, and maybe I'm being idealistic about this, would it be easier than to build off of this thing in the future rather than going from nothing? So now that we have this one building block, um, can we then the next next time around in negotiations, we have something um, to work off of, and then that means we would potentially get more later, or am I being too optimistic about that? <laughs> you're, you're totally in our head. I mean, we had these conversations a lot at the table and, um, first thanks, thanks for coming to those meetings and, and hearing, you know, whatever I had to say that day. Um, it, it helps a lot. I mean, that's, that's really important though, because people, you know, getting informed or, or participating is huge. Like that's, the most I can ask. Um, in terms of that specific benefit, um, we had this reverse Hunger Games kind of system before where we had a lottery of, of people, all the part-time faculty, and then 20 would be selected from their applications as tributes, and they would get a, a more substantial um, healthcare benefit. But it, it wasn't enough to, you know, is is enough to pay one month of premiums probably for themselves. And the only way that would roll over was when someone like retired, separated from the college, whatever. And then we would have another raffle basically for the next person. So that shift, while it decreased the, the benefit to those 20 people, it did make it universal. So it's the first universal part-time benefit we have. And it's small. I internally refer to that as the flu shot benefit. And I believe I said that to the attorney at the table. I was like, come on, you're buying like two kids a flu shot every semester. Like you can, that's just good for uh, productivity for the employee. They'll get sick less. But um, that represents a six-fold or a five-fold increase rather in part-time healthcare spending. So it was $20,000 uh, a semester before it's $100,000 or it's $120,000 now. So it's substantial. And then to Stephanie's point, um, yeah, the universality of that and, and the precedent is important. It's difficult rhetorically for the, the district to retreat off of that point, because frankly, it's a really bad look. Lots of other districts near us with the same revenues that we have offer significantly more generous health care to their part-time employees because they deserve it and they should do that and they can afford it. And so can we. Um, and part of it is competing with them, but also part of it's just like existing among your peers and, and kind of saving face. So I, I view that even though it is a really small benefit as a really significant one, a really significant culture change in how um, our administration is willing to treat part-time faculty, not quite yet fairly, but starting to acknowledge them and all of them uh, as necessary recipients of that benefit. Yeah, and I don't think you're being too optimistic here. I think um, the goal for us is to always improve on our contract, right? So once we get the, uh, the foot on the door, the idea is not to go back. So if nothing else, we stay the same or we improve, right? And I think that depends on us. If we are willing to get involved and go do the work, it can be done. We have that power. 
So this seems like a really uh, great segue to our next question, which is what are some of the things standing in the way of part-time faculty getting more rights? Wow. Okay. So I think this is one of those questions where we have already given the answer, but for part-time, the difficulty of a part-time uh, instructor at El Camino, and I think at every college, is the fact that they only get a little bit of their salary from El Camino. So they have to work usually two, three, sometimes four, or maybe even more different places. So what is standing in their way is generally a lack of organization, right? They they just, they're too, um, how can I say this? They're too distracted by all the other things going on on around their life that they cannot organize to come together and say, hey, we want the college to give us this. They don't have that power yet. So if we could get part-timers organized, I think it would be a really powerful tool and it will be, it will speak volumes to the district because um, one of the things we have to remember is that our college, we have about, in terms of faculty, part-timers are about two thirds of our faculty. So we have the mass. But I think the problem is the fact that the engagement is low, again, because they have to do this job at three or four or five different campuses. And that's it's unfair to ask of somebody to do extra work when they barely can make ends meet by working at all of these different places. Yeah, that, that was a great and super diplomatic answer. And I'll probably give a very much less diplomatic answer. Uh, it will be less diplomatic, I'll promise that. Um, this question has an objective answer, I think, and that answer is the, the systematic exploitation of part-time faculty in higher education uh, is the answer to it. I mean, that is the challenge, um, just, just putting that out there. I don't think that's controversial. It's just not something that you get your bosses to say out loud. And Laura's exactly right. I mean, we've had this conversation a million times because we represent part-time faculty as well here, not all. Um, faculty unions at community colleges do. Some are, are split between full-time and part-time. But um, part-time faculty do make up two-thirds of our workforce in the classrooms. Um, they, they make up half or more, usually in the two-thirds to three-quarter range around the state, uh, a lot around the country. Like, they are the sleeping dragon. And if all part-time faculty at El Camino or in the state or in the county or whatever decided tomorrow, like, hey, you know what, districts we work for, um, we're really tired of working without healthcare and we're done doing that for a while today, unless you give us the healthcare that we need and deserve, the districts wouldn't have really a choice. They can't replace everyone at once. And this goes back to our first question, or one of the earlier questions of, you know, how do unions work? What do you wish people knew about it? Like, I wish people understood their power. Um, having a giant cohort of people who provide the functional labor for an organization and on a campus, like on our side, at least on the educational side, that's faculty teaching the classes. But campus doesn't make money without that. The campus isn't a campus, they don't function. So organization is the challenge that comes about from that kind of um, systematic uh, disenfranchisement and exploitation of part-time faculty. And it, there's almost surgical precision with which that's designed. I mean, the, the fact that you're not allowed to work over a certain percentage in a certain district puts you geographically at a disadvantage where it's not physically possible to teach on enough campus 
campuses to raise your family and like make all those commutes in a given week and be active in all three of those unions. So it's, it's a much bigger challenge. Um, Part-time faculty do contribute less in, in dues. They, they're responsible for less dues because they have smaller loads on each campus. But I think their power is just as if not more important because they're two to one of part-time to full-time faculty. So whenever we have part-time faculty who are in any way interested and can carve out the time in their lives, they are some of our most potent and powerful allies. And we've had great ones in the last few years do work because they understand that they hold an asymmetric amount of power, but they're subject to an asymmetric amount of exploitation in, in the labor. And I think one of the structural challenges is that the competition between part-timers for a limited pool of full-time positions. Um, and if you've ever been on a full-time hiring committee, you know that you're, you're looking at 300 people applying for one, two, or three positions. And the way that that pits people against each other you know, it's even though all of us are nice to each other most of the time, the way, but the way the system works is if you want more security, if you want more of a reward for all this, this huge mountain of work that you're providing, you are in direct competition with the people who you should be collaborating with. I mean, I think that that's more of a systemic barrier. There's not like one individual who planned that out, but I think that that's another way that the power of people who are our part-time colleagues is sort of is limited. Um, and I think that there are people who take advantage of that as leverage. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. Um, I don't, I don't know that there's one person who planned that out and I guess it gets into politics, but I mean, education has been systematically underfunded for longer than any of our lifetimes. Um, and California has its own problems with, with how we fund it, um, on, on the state and local level. So that's, that's certainly one aspect of the problem. Um, there are other dimensions as well that are, are relevant, um, allocation of the revenues that we do have, uh, El Camino, for instance, spends typically under 90% of its revenue on, uh, salary and benefits. And that's for everyone. That's like managers, um, electricians, faculty, et cetera. What's typical for an organization like ours is to spend in the low 90s. So we're pretty underspent. And um, our, our trustees have said out loud that they think this is a good thing, that it's financial prudence. Um, I, I think it is shortchanging our very talented and qualified and hardworking employees. But what do I know? I'm just the guy on the other side of the table. Um, so that's that's one aspect of it. The other is that it it, it is often kind of brought to the fore and not by faculty, but just by the culture on campuses as an, as an us versus them, as a full-time versus part-time schism. And it doesn't have to be, and it doesn't need to be. There are other ways of mobilizing our, our faculty and teaching our classes and negotiating what loads are and how we're going to staff classes, what caps are, things like that, that can bring people up and flatten things out. Um, and there's just a lot of inefficiency that goes on at a management level that's unique to individual campuses. And if you look at our pay scales and our class caps and whatever, they look similar, but not the same as other campuses around. And those are management decisions. They're trustee decisions in, in a lot of ways, or they trickle down from that. And those are things we can affect, right? Like in our communities, we can elect our trustees. Um, we can have influence on our managers through negotiations. And it's, it's really not or it shouldn't be, and it doesn't have to be a faculty versus faculty problem. Um, I, I get a lot of, of angry faculty, full-time and part-time over all sorts of issues, and they're legitimate. Um, but we're, we're fighting over a pie that we shouldn't be 
necessarily fighting over in that way. We should be thinking about how to distribute it and how to expand it and who's making the decisions about how it's being cut up. That's a great point. And I think it's fitting this theme of, of people realizing the power that they have that's developing. And that's a, that's a theme I can get behind. That's nice. And speaking of, of good things, positive things, what are some of the bright spots that you see, or what are some of the things you're looking forward to? Well, Laura knows I am a, a naturally, um, what's the opposite of optimistic and cynical uh, person or non-cynical person. Yeah. So I, I, I'm always the rain cloud. I, I'm the realist. I like to say uh, I'm the one in the room who has to predict what the, what the other side is going to do and, and then be right and have all of us be sad. But um, I, as terms of bright spots, I'm going to go back to my plug. Um, AFT1388.org is a physical manifestation of a, a really important bright spot that is the culmination of, of years of work. And I don't mean that the website took years to build, but um, if you've tried to visit our union website in the last several years, you may notice that you either found a very old one that was unused or disused or didn't find one at all. And this is something that's kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, it, it ties back to why I got involved in the union, just things weren't getting done. Um, I felt like there were a lot of important issues that weren't being addressed. And there were just very few people to even address them. So what, what can you do? You can complain about it, you can walk away, or you can like hop in and do something. Um, the executive board that we have now and the engagement from faculty that we have now has been really good, super hardworking, perhaps too hardworking. I, I worry about some of them burning out, but um, we've been able to, to put a lot of these broken pieces back together, do a lot of restructuring of the Federation, um, financially, I think we're a lot stronger organizationally. Communications are better. Um, I think while this contract negotiation session was very depressing in some ways, given the circumstances of the universe around us, we, we came out really far ahead. I mean, a lot of districts were looking at no money on the table, and we managed to get a little piece of something for everyone in some working conditions. And all of that you can view at AFT1388.org. I'm a commercial now. Uh, and you know our, our, our new contract, uh, news updates, all of that stuff, um, calendar and just ways to get involved. And that uh, is, is a bright spot for me. I visit it several times a day, usually to look up a piece of ed code or piece of our contract. So hopefully you have a happier experience than me. <laughs> all right, I'm gonna give you the other side, which is something that so besides the work with the union and being able to work with colleagues and actually get involved, something that I am looking forward is this year, we have three board of trustees seats open. And so that means that no matter what, we have at least two new trustees because two of them are not running for re-election. Okay. So one of the things that I personally think um, I'm looking forward to is working with a board of trustees that is more open and it's a new board of trustees or at least partial. Because I do think that us as the union have to be involved with our managers and who actually makes the decisions on what we get and what we don't get. And so getting involved and being able to communicate with them to me is very important. And so I, I see to, uh, this year specifically as an opportunity to be able to engage in a more professional or perhaps in more conversations with them to try to get them to understand what our problems are. Because these are ideally people who care for their community and El Camino is part of their community. So it, they should be engaged and we should be engaged with them. 
Yeah, and just one more plug, if you want to know uh, about the the candidates that the Committee on Polit Political Education endorsed um, from the faculty uh, are, who, who they are, where they're running, all of that, that's available on AFT1388.org in the Coke tab. I got a nickel every time they say this. <laughs> you, I think we we already kind of touched upon this, but is there any other ways that um, you want to suggest that faculty can get involved? Is there like a website or something maybe? Yeah, like a website would be great. <laughs> Troy, yeah, can you answer this one? I think <laughs> I believe we're working on it. Yeah, it's AFT1388.org. Uh, no, I, Laura, you're up. Yeah, it is AFT1388.org. You can find all the information about everything that we're doing as a union in there. Okay, but other ways that I think you can get involved, sure. Like whenever we send the survey, please fill it out. We do read them. <clears throat> we do look at those answers. And so this is something that's important because we get input. Um, and that's what in generally drives our negotiations and our decisions as to what faculty need. Um, make sure you get involved. I mean, I think this has been a topic throughout the whole conversation. Get involved, ask questions. If you don't know what the union is here for, just contact us. Um, yeah, sure, we have a lot of work and sometimes we don't get to emails right away, but we'll get eventually to them. And we're more than happy to answer any questions and to make sure that we hear what you have to say. And, you know, it's important for everybody to raise their opinion and say, hey, you know, what can I do? Can I help? Um, one of the things that I particularly enjoyed about, well, okay, I'll take that back. I didn't enjoy negotiations, but before negotiations started, one of the things that was <laughs> that was particularly useful was the fact that I was able to reach out to different departments and say, hey, this person or this group of people were interested in this one particular section of an article. And then I asked them, what is it that they wanted to change? And so being able to get that kind of input from people was really useful. I have a few things to say on this. Um, at first, I would say, Faculty don't need to be 100% involved or 0% involved. Um, it's okay to just say hi and, and drop in with a question or not have a question. A lot of faculty I talk to feel like they need to have a prepackaged question or issue before they even drop in and, and say something. You can like come at me with complaints. I, I'd say 90% of the communications I get are that. They're like, why have you done this to me? Um, and the answer is usually like, I didn't know I was doing anything to you and it wasn't actually me who did it. But the, the more I communicate, the more I learn, the, the better I can speak for other people. Again, we're, we're the, the coaches and the trainers. We're not the people on the field in many ways. So any engagement is good. Uh, ways to get directly involved. Again, read our communications. We're asking for help all the time. Right now, for instance, we're trying to staff out committees on member outreach. We could really use, um, for instance, like representation in humanities. We have some really good division reps. Uh, some may or may not be here. And uh, we, we can always use more. It's a big division. Same thing with math. So there are areas of campus where we're a little light if you're thinking that your strengths just lie in talking to your colleagues and kind of getting their input. That's a great way to get involved. If you want to be kind of more technocratic, we've got lots of work that we can do on stuff that's already kind of on our plates contract-wise or, or kind of legal issues that, that we're thinking about and dealing with. If you don't know what you want to do or you're not sure if you want to be involved, you can just reach out and talk to us. Um, again, it's not an all or nothing um, trade and just communication in any format is going to lead to greater education, which is 
you know, for the seventh time, the key to this whole thing and, and making the operation work because everyone's effort is critical here. So, you know, if you just go to AFT1388.org, okay, I'll shut up now. I'll stop doing that. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, I'm rambling at this point and you can probably cut most of this out. Laura covered the, the good points. Any, any level of engagement, any way of getting involved, check out the communications, read the surveys, think of an issue that's important to you. Let us know. Um, one of the most frequent things I do when I get emails that deal with specific issues is turn right back around after I've done a little bit of reading or understanding and ask what they would recommend. Because usually if you have the issue, you have better experience than I do. And it's very rewarding to be on my end of that because I learn a lot about the people on this campus in the different areas. I know how ceramics teachers feel about kiln access during remote teaching, which is something I probably would not know otherwise. You know, I, I know how math is teaching their classes right now and, and kind of the, the different schools of thought and, and how that's going and what the challenges are. And those are really useful things to understand about other departments and your colleagues uh, in the context of you being better at your job and you kind of finding your place in the institution. So I have... Um and this is, you know, kind of extra, and I know we didn't plan this question. Um, so take your time. And if we need to cut things or um, I, I kind of want to go back to like a basic, like, you know, first grader definition of union, like what's the union purview? What's the purview of the academic Senate versus union? And how do those differ? Um, and I even had a little bit of a question, and this might be um, kind of dumb, but no dumb questions, right? Uh, when can I talk union and who can I talk union to? Like, um, what are some etiquettes when it comes to who I can talk union to and who I can't and when I should bring things up and when I shouldn't, if there's any tips you guys have? Always better to ask forgiveness than permission. At least that's how I've lived my life. Um, I, I think you, you bring up some interesting points. Um, back to your, your original question though, like first grade definition, what's the purview? The, the Senate has a purview of 10 plus one and naming all 11 for me would be a total gotcha question. So I won't try, but broadly speaking, the Senate is involved in kind of coordinating the shared governance process of faculty with the campus. So making sure that there's faculty input and review and participation on all sorts of structural and educational decisions that happen on campus. The, the Federation or the Union is the sole collective bargaining agent for the faculty. So you, you go get a job at some private company and there's no union. Your boss hands you a contract and they say, this is our agreement. I can change it at my discretion when it expires. Those are the rules. When you have a collective bargaining agreement, what that means is every time that contract expires, you have agents, your Federation representatives, and that can be you. You just have to be a union member. We'll let you on the negotiating team, please, um, who negotiate on your behalf. And that needs to be worked out. So it gives you some protection uh, in that there is the, I, I'm going to use the word implicit threat. I, I don't mean that in, in quite as ominous a way, but there's the implicit threat of like, we are organized, we're unified, and we hold the cards of whether or not labor gets done in this area. So you need to come to the table with us and reason with us in good faith to come to an equitable agreement. And generally, historically, what we found is that being union represented leads to safer workplaces, happier workplaces, longer term employees, better paid employees, more lasting institutions, all of that. So that's the kind of general top level difference between union and Senate. Uh, we do intersect in a lot of areas and some of this is contractual. There are parts of our contract where 
the, the Senate has purview to take over assignment of a committee where the Senate and the union both appoint to uh, some body or both make a joint decision, things like that. So there, there are definitely areas where they intersect. So the other half of your question, that's, that's a little stickier because I, I know we're not going to name names. Maybe we could talk about it offline. Um, generally speaking, there's, there's no labor issue that you shouldn't be able to talk about in, in front of your dean or in front of other colleagues. Um, so, so long as you're not like plotting some, some weird hatched strategy, which I know you're not, Stephanie, um, you wouldn't do that. But, you know, it, bringing labor issues to light to your supervisor is kind of like a, a core tenant of how you improve the workplace. Uh, I do it all the time. And sometimes I do it on behalf of other employees who are uncomfortable with it, right? Like this isn't working out or they don't feel like they're being heard in this situation. They don't feel like they're empowered to do the thing they're supposed to be empowered to do. And having those discussions with a supervisor is a lot easier and, and less messy than trying to negotiate that into a contract, which is kind of a broader agreement. So I, I don't know, maybe we could talk specifics later. Maybe we can cut all this out. But um, those are the, the major differences there and kind of the contours of those situations. But I do have something to add here, which is I found out myself that I wanted to talk in quotations, union to my colleagues. And sometimes there was one time where the dean happened to be there. And so it is important, I think, to realize that, you know, if we are trying to organize, like the deans are administration. And so you do have to be careful with what you say around them because you don't want to give up our strategy all the time, especially if we're trying to do something special to organize. So I think in that sense, we do have to think about who we're talking to. But Troy is absolutely right. If there is an issue or you want to bring up the union because it's in the contract, then there is no reason not to, to say anything. But uh, in terms of colleagues, I mean, not everybody at El Camino is a member of the union. Okay, so I think it is important for us to engage in conversations with our colleagues, members and non-members. Members, so we can get them motivated and we can get them, you know, agitated in order to care. And then non-members, so that we can get them interested and say, hey, you know, this is important for this, or these things are important for this and these reasons. So I think that it's, um, it is our task, I guess, to make sure that we do communicate both with our colleagues and with the administrators. But we do have to be careful um, on certain level about what we say in front of who, right? So it depends on what your goal is. Are you trying to get people organized? Then, you know, have to think about what we say. Mm -hmm.